Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's happening? Well, huge news this week. The House and Senate have passed the American Rescue Plan, which is the largest injection of federal aid since the Great Depression. And Biden is expected to sign this bill on Friday. This is a $1.9 trillion bill. Uh, It includes a lot of really important and needed injections of funding and changes to law to help our country recover from COVID. So you've got $1,400 stimulus checks in there. $300 a week jobless benefits extensions, which come at a critical time as those benefits were set to expire, a child allowance of up to $3,600 a year, $350 billion state aid, $34 billion to expand the ACA, $14 billion for vaccine distribution. Jason, how big of a deal is this? It's a huge deal, man. I I feel like I just got back from this road trip, as you know, from my day job up to, to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And as as I'm traveling up there, you can feel two things. One, you know, the change that when you get outside of the city, when you get outside of Kansas City, there's that thing like some people are wearing masks and some people are not. And then you get to Sioux Falls and like there are some places where people look at you like, why do you have that mask on? I mean, it's definitely a different approach to it. But overall, what I could feel both with my team that I was with and with the people that I encountered, two things, a sense that people are like really even people like us who've been really careful and taking this very seriously are really ready to get to the end of this whole thing. There's that. I mean, I feel that way. I mean, I'm still wearing my mask and and, and everything and being careful, but like we're ready to get to the end of it. And the second part is I feel a really strong sense of people going, I think maybe we've got this like not handled, but like we're on the right track now. And you can see that in all the polling about this package. And and while it's not causing a lot of people to be like, man, Biden's really just doing an amazing job. Like, I'm not hearing that a lot. But what I am hearing is this incredible sense of relief. Like, okay, I think they've got this now. Whether people say it a lot or not, they understand that it has to do with the change that happened in January. Yeah. And, and shout out to, we've got some listeners out in South Dakota, Majority 54, the Garish family in particular have been longtime listeners. So shout out to them. I know they've been publicly fighting, even though they're employees of the university system, they've been publicly fighting the good fight against their governor and her irresponsible policies. And I, I know that takes a lot of courage. Uh, but I agree with you. This is a huge deal. You know, if, if we didn't pass this bill, or if Biden went for something much smaller, you can imagine the Republicans would be saying he was ineffective president, and they'd be trying to say he's like a Carter-esque president. One thing we know for sure is they cannot say that this is an inconsequential president. Right out the gates, first 100 days, he passes a historic piece of legislation. 
And I'm left thinking about all the people who made this possible. Uh, this was a narrow vote, 50 to 49, I think, in the Senate, because it was one Republican senator who couldn't make it. The Georgia uh, runoff, essential. Uh, every Senate seat we have, essential. Winning the presidency and having Vice President Harris, essential. Uh, winning the House and holding the House in the last election, essential. Uh, and uh, the fact that every Democratic senator uh, voted for this bill and enough of our House members, minus one, um, shame on you, Representative Golden in Maine. I'm not quite sure what's going on up there. But we basically had everybody on board for this piece of legislation. And it took a lot of discipline um, every step of the way to get to this point. And so I just want to congratulate everybody, thank everybody out there who did the hard work, because this was a long time coming. Yeah. And I would add to that, that it seems obvious now that we would have learned lessons from, uh, you know, President Obama's first 100 days and, and having, you know, and that seems obvious that we would have learned those lessons that, okay, the Republicans are going to shame you for not doing more to court their votes to the point where you end up going with less than what you think is necessary. And then they can shame you later for not being as effective as you would have been had you done what you thought was right. So, but it's not a small thing that that the Biden administration learned that lesson that they barreled into this and said we're not going to allow you to to uh, lure us into this trap. Like so, I so I, you know I think I think a lot of props um, to the folks in the White House who who knew exactly what America needed and, and weren't going to allow anybody to take them uh, off of that uh, off of that trajectory. Yeah, and you know one unfortunate fact here is that this was a party line vote for the most part, minus uh, Representative Golden, Democrat, and Maine. Uh, this was predictably fully Democratic votes uh, for passing it, and Republicans, even despite all the infighting going on in the Republican Party, they held together against this bill, despite the fact that this bill enjoys widespread support from the American public. Seventy-six percent of Americans support this bill, according to the recent Morning Consult poll. Um, Jason, what does it say about the state of politics today that Republicans held uh, unanimously against a bill that enjoys support from 76% of Americans? You know, I think a lot of that is a factor of the fact that we are so far from an election, right? I mean, I don't want to say that, well, it's going to be our job to remind everybody that they voted no on it. Because look, I don't think that that's what motivates people. I don't think that, you know, 18 months to almost two years after a vote like this, that people uh, who are who are persuadable voters are going to go, you can't keep people angry that long. And by the way, that's not a horrible thing that you can't keep people angry that long. And it is also just a, a factor of the way the American attention span works now in this um, not even 24 hour uh, news environment, just like hour by hour news environment. So rather than lament that, I think that what we've got to do is just keep racking up victories. Because what it says about politics today is that People do have short memories, and that's what the Republicans have realized is they can get away with a lot. They can oppose this thing from the start and then do whatever they can to try to make it unsuccessful and try and paint it as unsuccessful. So let's not even give them the time to do that. Let's, you know, when you're talking with your friends and your family and people who are persuadable in the next election, just stay on message about not just this bill and how great it is, but on the next thing and and on what we're working on next and why you think it's so important. So we got it. We're already the party of governing. So let's be the party of governing well and delivering. Yeah, I think delivering is the key here. And, you know, we speak at a time where uh, the two most prominent governors, Democratic governors in the country are under fire for various reasons. Um, and one of them embroiled in scandal, but both of them uh, have been 
largely criticized for failure to implement bold progressive legislation and taking advantage of Democratic majorities. One thing I've been thinking about as this bill is passed is that given the scope of this bill, it's incumbent upon the Biden administration to be extremely competent and for um, the entire House and Senate and the Biden administration to make sure that this is administered competently because Republicans are going to say that this is um, incompetently and ineffectively administered no matter what. But there's a lot here that we need to do. And, and that means that we need to give support to the IRS, which is going to be under more pressure than it's ever been before, the Small Business Administration, which is going to be un, under more pressure than ever before. And this is where we have to be effective progressives. Like the, the entire apparatus of government is going to be under attack at a time where it's, it's strained more than it's ever been before. And if we deliver, then progressives have now crossed the critical threshold in legitimizing government to improve people's lives. And if we fail, then we've taken a step back. And I, and I think about two things that happened at the end of the Trump administration that should give us caution here. One is uh, we passed a $25 billion rental assistance program in December. A lot of that money hasn't been sent out. Uh, we also passed a $15 billion assistance program to entertainment venues. And according to at least the industry leaders, zero dollars of that have been sent out. And that was that was uh, passed in December. And, and anybody knows that those venues are dying left and right across this country. And so that was obviously that was passed in the Trump administration. I don't really put much of the blame of that on Biden, but we got to we got to learn lessons from those programs and say, let's get this money out as fast as we possibly can in the most efficient and effective, uh, least fraudulent way to help as many people as possible. Yeah, this is a moment where everybody is paying attention, right? Because, you know, the conversation that's being had in households all over the country right now, and I overheard coworkers talking about it today, because this is one of those news stories that's rare right now and that it permeates everything because it involves money, you know? And so the conversation people are having is, so are we getting $1,400? And what else is in this? So people are keenly aware of this development in a way that they usually are not of a piece of, of individual piece of legislation. And that's, I would, that's really just underlines your point is that you don't get that many moments in governing to actually know when your customer, which in this case is just American taxpayers, voters, are really going to be paying attention and expect you to deliver. It's like if you're an if you're an election administrator, it's on election day when people are encountering the experience of voting. It's like when people pay their taxes, you know, depending on your position at the city or the state level, it's like when people get their car registered, you get these moments where they are going to render a judgment on you. Uh, like with Obamacare, it was when they decide, okay, I think I am going to try to sign up for the exchange. You have these moments where they're going to render this verdict. And and this is one of those moments for the next several months. A lot of Americans are going to interact with this development. And yeah, absolutely, we need to get it right because we are the people who argue that government has an important role to play. And this is really a, a moment to show up for that. And what we can all do as individuals is we can help our friends navigate the process. Like if you if you know what people are supposed to do, make sure the people in your life you know, find it easy to navigate the process, make this experience easier for them, because it's going to color their judgment about the Biden administration and the Democratic Party and the country for a while. Ultimamente ho praticato il mio italiano.
If you don't speak Italian, that means I have been practicing my Italian lately uh, on Babbel. It's the number one selling language learning app. They use so many different ways of getting the language to stick. They give you conversations in Italian that are just like conversations that you'd overhear in the real world. And I look forward to every day because it just makes you think about being in that country and actually having your sea legs. Babbel's 15-minute lessons make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel designs their courses, like Ravi said, with practical real-world conversations in mind. Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts, and their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. So go to Babbel.com. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com. The code is majority54 for an extra three months free. That's Babbel.com. It's Babbel. It's the language for life. So as I mentioned, I just got back from this road trip. And when you go from Kansas City to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, one of the things you do is you you drive through a lot of very rural parts of middle America. And I actually found myself thinking a little bit about our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, a lot of these folks, they live a long way from a licensed professional therapist. And they're just as much in need and worthy of of mental health help as as anybody else. And I was just thinking about the fact that BetterHelp really democratizes the opportunity to get that kind of help. And that's why we're, we're glad to be sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe, private online environment. It's really convenient. And You could start communicating in under 48 hours. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and and financial aid is available. Find the particular expertise that you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors located near you. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I've been thinking about is how do we talk about this this bill to the people around us, right? And uh, one of the things in this bill that's notable and and probably not talked about enough yet is the child tax credit extension or expansion. And it's it's a it's a little complicated and, and I it's it's a little frustrating at times that our policies are tax credits and things like that because it sometimes makes it hard to explain to people and it can make it hard to implement. And we'll get to the impl- more of the implementation arguments uh, a little bit later on in this podcast. But by uh, most accounts, this is going to be one of the most significant things to happen to poor people in this country uh, in our lifetime, potentially the biggest. The bottom 60% of this country uh, or families in this country are going to see an average income increase of 11% because of this. And the bottom 20% are going to see an increase of 33%. That is huge. And that is progressive, right? When we talk about what it means to be progressive, that is progressive, meaning the poorer you are, the more you're helped. And when I talk to people about this, I say that's the Democratic Party. Uh, That's what the Democratic Party should be. Now, yes, there are people who make more who may not need this. That's going to happen. And when we talk about implementation, if you the more surgical you make it, the harder it is for the IRS and SBA to administer these things. So there's a tension between simplicity and uh, the narrow tailoring point. But I compare that to the tax cut, which overwhelmingly helped the wealthiest in this country. And that's what the Republican Party is about. Therefore, 
people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, not just a hundred, but hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars a year and billions of dollars a year. We're about helping the people at the lower end of the spectrum first and foremost, and uh, middle-income families as well. Yeah, raising the floor, right? You know, I have a, a friend who I work with who I was just on this road trip with, and and he is he's a libertarian, and so we have some really interesting conversations, and we were talking about this piece of legislation and others, and and talking about this piece of legislation in the context. It was a long road trip in the context of the entire economy, and by the end of it, I'm saying, you see you agree with me and with Elizabeth Warren that the entire thing is rigged. And by the end of it, he's like, well, you know, it's a pretty fair point. I mean, really, the whole system, the way it's set up, I mean, it's really not fair to people who are having the hardest time. And and so my point here is that something as transformative as this provides an incredible opportunity to make the case to people uh, who you might not be able to reach otherwise, uh, because it's such a big swing that it really gives you an opportunity to talk about what we're really about. Yeah. And, you know, it's a child tax credit, right? And it's why I start with kids because I think that's the, the if you're built, creating the building blocks of what it means to have an active government, I start with kids because they do not know a lot of their own, right? Like I, you and I can agree that there are some adults who have their uh, or have a certain lot that's through no decisions of their own, but we can all agree that a kid doesn't make decisions about where they work, where they live, where they go to school, et cetera. And so they should have access to healthcare. They should have the basic necessities of life. And I try to start there with libertarians because most of them will agree that the government, i.e. us as, as people in an organized way, should be looking out for those kids. Well, and the other thing with true libertarians is that, you know, if they're genuinely libertarian, and even if they're not, like, you can kind of put them on the spot and say, like, well, if you're genuinely libertarian, that's when you can get into the idea that, look, and just what you were talking about a minute ago, look, you may not like this intervention in the economy, but there's constantly intervention in the economy. And the question is who you're intervening on behalf of. And so when you can put them in a position where, you know, like, why you have to choose because the previous administration is intervening on behalf of people who are good to go. And this, this administration, you may not like intervention, but at least they're intervening. You know, like we got into a conversation on, on the car right down about fossil fuels and that kind of thing. And, and when you introduce the fact that, you know, all of that is massively subsidized, like a true libertarian, uh, like the one I was on this road trip with about an hour ago was saying like, yeah, I think it was a huge mistake to subsidize that industry. And, and so that's when you get, and then you get into a really great conversation about, well, what would, how quickly would alternative, uh, you know, energy come into the system if, if it had been more fair. And that's kind of how you can walk people toward your own, your own point of view. What can we expect next, Jason? I think this is the exciting point and also a heartburn-inducing point here. Is it going to be infrastructure, voting rights? Uh, what can we expect without reconciliation as a tool here? Or at least a limited window for reconciliation after this? I don't know. I mean, you know, conventional wisdom would say that, like, infrastructure is the thing that back in, you know, the, the old days, it was, well, that's the thing that everybody can agree on. But, I mean, is is there anything that everybody can agree on at this point? So, so I'm not sure. It could just be a big trap. So to me, it's it's HR one. It's voting rights. It's just just going at it as hard as as we possibly can. It was interesting over the weekend, you know, to have um, Joe Manchin sort of signal a little bit like, "Hey, I might be willing to talk," and then kind of like, "Well, I'm not sure." I'd make it harder to get rid of the filibuster. I'm supporting the filibuster, but it should be painful if you want to use it. 
You just you should make make sure the place works to where, okay, I want to work with you. How can we do this? How do we move forward? So I don't know where that sits, but I think the only way to break that loose is to charge hard at it. Because at the end of the day, if we don't actually have voting rights, there's not going to be a lot left to talk about after that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was cautiously hopeful at Joe Manchin's statement. He, he, the, the Senate he, Majority Leader from West Senate Virginia. Senate Majority Leader, President, <laughs> uh, whatever we want to call yeah. him today, who, like, I give him credit. He voted for this this bill. And I, I take it one day at a time with Joe Manchin. And I understand he's from one of the most Republican states in the country. And I don't want to predetermine where we go here. And I, and I want I want to be optimistic about him as well as the the Senate as a whole here. Also, let's say something else about Joe Manchin. We, I think a lot of people on the left operate under the assumption that Joe Manchin is just acting out of fear. And what we never, and I'm not, I don't know that this makes much of a difference, but you know, what if Joe Manchin's just really conservative? Yeah. Or if he's, <laughs> I mean, if he's just not going to run again. Yeah. And he just, he is concerned about how narrow because some some of the changes he asked for, I think, are reasonable. Like whether you agree with them or not, they're not insane uh, suggestions. You know. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it, it everybody assumes it's this game of like convincing, like like creating the political environment for Joe Manchin to do the right thing, when it might actually be a matter of persuading Joe Manchin that this is the right thing. I, I don't know that that changes much, but. I do think it's helpful to at least stop and consider that possibility. Or like people who think he got everything he wanted. Like I I, I do suspect that there's a lot in this bill he probably didn't want, but he, he was a team player ultimately. And you got to remember this is a guy who voted for impeachment twice in a state that overwhelmingly supports Donald Trump. I think it's one of the most Trump-supporting states in the country. Um, as you had helpfully pointed out, when Obama, I think, either ran for re-election or election the first time, Obama lost the Democratic primary to somebody, I think, who was incarcerated at the time. So this is not a state that's easy for Democrats, but, you know, obviously, like you said, HB1, I think that's the most important piece because that's the gateway to everything else. Like if, if the Republicans succeed at disenfranchising voters further and some of these aggressive actions, both the redistricting and changes to the voting laws like they did in, in Georgia just recently or what they're doing in Georgia right now, uh, then we're not going to be able to gain power in any near the numbers than we, that we should. And that, that will affect every other piece of legislation. And so I think that's where the ball game has to be right now, because that, it'll be lights out for us if we let the Republicans get away with what they're trying right now. Yeah, we have this very narrow window to actually reform this democracy. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's got to be the next focus. And, I, and it doesn't mean like until we get it done, we can't do anything else. But boy, it's it's got to be... Um, our, our major effort. Bombas makes the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. There's so many things about them that I like. One, when you put them on, you realize that there's an L on one and an R on the other. You're like, okay, something special is happening here because these socks are being treated like shoes. They feel differently. They look cool. I'm all about them. These socks do more than keep your feet cozy. They help give back to the most vulnerable members of our community uh, because for every pair of socks you purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks and counting to their nationwide network of 3,000 plus giving partners. And the impact is more powerful than ever. To those experiencing homelessness, these socks represent the dignity of putting on clean clothes small comfort that's especially important right now. So you can give a pair when you buy a pair and get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash majority 54. 
That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash majority54 for 20% off your first purchase. That's a great deal. That's bombas.com slash majority54. I've been a subscriber to The Economist for many years now, and every time I read it, I feel a million times smarter, almost like I'm getting my own presidential daily briefing. What's really cool is that The Economist now has podcasts, including Checks and Balance, which is a podcast from The Economist that I think our listeners are really going to like. Yeah, what I love about this podcast is that it's very much like The Economist. It's like, yeah, look, you can get the top level stuff on cable news or you can get it in the newspaper. We're going to go deeper. So when you look at some of the things they've gotten into, like, is the Supreme Court too political? Why is Florida key to national politics? What's actually preventing a faster and fairer vaccine rollout? Like, they're going to take you to that next level. There's so much depth in it. And this podcast is the same way. Each week, John Perdoe, The Economist's U.S. editor, tackles a new topic that's shaping American politics and digs into the country's complex history to explain what's actually going on today. And he's joined by experts and economist correspondents from around the U.S. to talk through the ideas and data influencing the direction this country is headed. So for a fair-minded and global perspective on democracy in America, subscribe to The Economist's Checks and Balance podcast now. That's Checks and Balance from The Economist. Subscribe and listen for free on Acast, your podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this week in misinformation, Jason, let's stick with the COVID relief bill, uh, the American Rescue Plan. I love that name. Um, and let's talk about how we expect the GOP to attack the bill. Now, I, I think it's important here not to do the tinfoil hat crowd here, the Jewish space laser crowd, we can call it. Um, let's instead go at the more substantive attacks on this bill, because I do think when you pass a $1.9 trillion bill, it would be nice to have an opposition party who is disciplined in trying to push back against that. Um, now, my, my, my hope would be that that would be an opposition party in, in a much smaller minority than they are right now. But that is the role of a conservative party is to question government spending. And if you squint and give a lot of credit to the GOP, they have some substantive critiques here. Um, and I'll start with Liz Cheney here, who said, uh, we know for sure that includes that the bill includes provisions that are not targeted, they're not temporary, they're not related to COVID, and it didn't have to be this way. We could have had a bill that was a fraction of the cost of this one, it could have gotten bipartisan approval and support. Now, Jason, I keep hearing bipartisan as a critique of this. Uh, why has that all of a sudden become the standard, and how should we think of that standard? Well, if I'm the Republicans, that's exactly how I move the goalpost because it's the only thing they have control over, right? They can control whether or not a bill gets bipartisan support. They can't control whether a bill is popular. They can't control whether it's successful, uh, but they can control whether it gets bipartisan support. And if they can make that the standard for success, well, then they can just make everything unsuccessful. And and that's what, what they're doing here. So, you know, if you're talking to somebody and they're saying, but he didn't get any Republican votes, you know, my answer to that would be, I'm sorry, do you pay your your electric bill with Republican votes? Like, why do you why are we talking about this? It, it doesn't have anything to do. You know, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. And and so I would just dismiss it and say, let's talk, you know, just pivot back to let's talk about what's in the bill. Now, as for Liz Cheney's criticism that there's stuff in here that's not directly related to COVID because there, you know, there's stuff in there that's just frankly, regular old demand side Democratic uh, point of view economics that's like, let's juice the economy and let's do it for working people. And again, I would say, yeah, maybe that's not directly related to COVID. It doesn't like pay for vaccines, 
But first, it's directly related to the fact that COVID has made the economy go into hibernation over the last year. And second, who cares? Like the system is completely corrupt and rigged and and this is needed. So I would first say you're wrong. And second, if you're right, who cares? Let me tell you why this is really important. Do we only need to do COVID legislation? I don't get it. Like, you know, like when we're in the middle of the Iraq war, not every piece of legislation was about the Iraq war. We're in the middle of freaking World War II. Not everything was about World War II. Like, obviously, it helped our country if our economy was back on track. And, and certainly that's what happened in World War II. But I agree with you. And in, in the Congressional Budget Office, there's a nifty chart. And, and Vox had a good article that showed the, the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan entity uh, out of Congress, showed what the GDP has been and what it would be without this bill and then what it what it is projected to be with this bill. And basically what you see is that GDP is upside down right now. It's lower than it was projected to be and what it would have been without COVID, obviously, uh, pretty significantly. But pretty quickly, within about a year, GDP then goes into the black ahead of where it would have been without this bill and even potentially higher than uh, if there was no COVID period, which is good government. Like, obviously, we don't want to just get back to where we were without this virus. We want to be better in every possible way. Uh, and obviously, you can't bring lives back. You can't, you can't bring back the time that students have lost in the classroom. Uh, you can't bring back the customers that were lost in time over the past year. But looking ahead, you can make the country as strong as you possibly could be. And why would we put a cap on that to say that, you know, the, the, the pre-COVID projections are where we need to stop here. Yeah, all of this is just a trap. Whether you're talking about what, you know, the Republicans are saying in Washington or what, you know, they've got people saying, you know, to our listeners in daily conversations. It is all trying to distract from the fact that this is wildly popular because it is not just the right thing to do. This is the shit that we should have been doing for the last year. And you know, 70 something percent, at least of Americans know that. I mean, they absolutely know that. So what do they want to do? Like they're losing that argument. They want to pull us into a totally different argument and just don't go there. Just be like, no, I mean, I don't care whether it's COVID related. I don't care. No, this obviously is needed. Like, look at what's going on in the country. And so I think just don't let them do that. Yeah. Um. Sort of on this point that Liz Cheney had about this not being targeted and temporary. Um, what do we make of that argument, and what would a more targeted and temporary bill look like? And and is, does that even matter? Why do we accept that standard? It's hilarious to me because when you know, like last March, like a year ago, when all of this started, and you know, a lot of Democrats were saying, "Hey, we need to make sure we're focused on the virus in order to revive the economy," and the Republicans were saying, "We need basically like we need to." ignore the virus in order to revive the economy, right? And now we're doing both. Like now we're passing legislation that it got tons of money in it for vaccines. The Biden administration is announcing, you know, how much more of like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine they're going to buy. Like we're 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 very focused on the virus and at the same time we are doing a ton of stuff to get the economy going and they're going I mean, is this why why are we not just treating the virus? Why are we doing anything else? And the answer to that is in the rest of what Ted Cruz said when he calls it a partisan wish list. So, it's not that they now have have, you know, hypocritically said, "Oh, you don't need to do anything about the economy. You just need to focus on the virus and the virus only." It's just we're not helping the people in the economy that they think should get helped, right? Like they feel that if you were in a financial position where you were vulnerable, 
to being hurt by what happened in the economy in this virus, well, then you did something wrong. And as a result, like it's kind of your own damn fault is how they see it. And in general, they just think that the way you help the economy is you you give money to these magical wizards who are already rich because clearly they've figured things out and they'll do magical things with their money. <laughs> so like if the bill did that, they'd say that's oh, yeah. great. But it doesn't. So they call it a partisan wish list. And it's a, you know, he said it's for, you know, all these Democratic interest groups. Yeah, like people who work with their hands or who've been unemployed or, you know, all these No, but Jason, you're misunderstanding (laughs) it. If we Democrats give money to rich people, we're globalists. If they give money to rich people, they're for freedom. Uh, Yes. But um, that's right. Every bill can be more targeted, right? I can I can give people a lie detector test to say how much have you been affected by COVID. I can look at your children's browsing histories to see how much learning loss they've had and how much they're dicking off online. Sure. And then I could I could titrate the money based on that. And we'll be doing this for a century before the money gets out. I think we learned a lot from uh, the stimulus bill back in the Obama administration, which Biden was central to, is that the quote unquote shovel ready critique, right? We need to get the money out the doors. We were too targeted back then. At this point, it's like speed is really important. And when you ask the American people this, this is the same Vox article, the overwhelming majority of Americans, which includes some Republicans and a ton of independents, when asked, do you want big and fast or do you want bipartisan and targeted? They're going to go with big and fast. Uh, And that's pretty uh, intuitive. Now, you alluded to Ted Cruz. And so what he said was that the bill was only 9% of the $1.9 trillion uh, of the bill was focused on uh, healthcare or COVID healthcare spending, and that the, the remaining 91% is what he calls, quote, a partisan wish list paying off the Democratic special interests that got elected. Now, a um, couple things on this. like It's unclear why the percentage going to healthcare spending is the metric, given that this is a bill that's both about the economy and the healthcare system. Uh, also, by the way, like we should in no way just assume that any of that is anything but bullshit yeah. since it came from Ted Cruz. But let's work with his bullshit. Anyway. Yeah, the same people wanted to repeal the ACA and that would fight any attempt to expand coverage in this country are somehow now concerned about healthcare. If he wants it to be like, look, OK, let's keep adding to it. Let's make the 9 percent 50 percent. I'm sure he'll take us up on that. Um, but on this wish list front, you know, Cruz is saying that this this bill is just Democratic wish list items. I would behoove anybody who hears somebody making this claim. See, I gave you that bulleted list at the beginning of this podcast. Go through that bulleted list and ask people, which of these would you take out? Like, do you think poor families shouldn't get a tax credit? Do you think we shouldn't extend unemployment insurance? Do you think we shouldn't send money down to cities and states that have seen their their budgets ravaged? And now some people, maybe I would cut this back. I'll cut a little bit back of that. But nobody's going to say that's a wish list of items. And we can look no further than the GOP coalition that was pushing for a quote unquote negotiated solution between Republicans and Democrats. They wanted a $6.18 billion alternative to the Democratic plan that basically was the same list of stuff minus a couple things, except smaller. So it's not a wish list, it's just more robust than what the Republicans in the Senate wanted. And I'd be happy to have that debate any day. No, I think that's a super important point that we should underline. Like it is this. Based on what they proposed as a counteroffer, this doesn't give money or support to different groups. It just gives more. I don't get it. Like the the people who got support under this, like they become Democratic special interests when they get more support. Like it makes no sense. Uh, and I think you're totally right. I think that just like anything else, because we tend to win on these policy uh, arguments, just 
give people examples and be like, are you against this? Like, tell me what you're against in this piece of legislation. Because I think what they're against are two letters, one D for Democrat and two T for trillion. Like people key in on that. But you know what? Sometimes I guess getting out of a pandemic that comes comes along every hundred years after inflation, like you got to use the T, like you need a trillion. That's what it's going to take. And, uh, and so that's what we're doing. Yeah. And you know, if this would have been more targeted, so if, let's say it's only the very poor, which there's an argument for that, they would have accused us of class warfare, right? And so there's just no winning with this. It's not a genuine argument. And, you know, even I think the genuine substantive critiques of this, I want that debate. Like our, our friend of the pod, Mike Murphy, Republican strategist, I was listening to him this morning and he was saying, look, I'm, he, he doesn't like the bill. He thinks it's too big. And he was like, I have this, this guy I know. He's a, you know, a young guy who's working in Hollywood. He's, making, he's not making a lot of money, but he's a son of a billionaire. Right. And he's he called me up laughing, like, what am I going to do with this check? And I was thinking to myself, what in what what policy is going to stop that? Do I ask you an adult what your dad makes? Like, how many IRS people are we going to need to implement that policy? Like, obviously, that's that's the point one percent of issues we're dealing with. And respectfully, Mike, I think you've been spending too much time in Hollywood. I don't think that's a problem we're seeing anywhere around the country. I, I think that's going to be the vast minority of stuff that we're dealing with. Here. Well, that, that's the irony of stuff like this, right? Is they love to bring up little anecdotes and try and prove those to be the whole. But what, you know, when you get into that conversation, it's okay. How big would you like the IRS to be? Like, you know, because we can we can fix that problem. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm with you. Like, let you know, I would say, like, let's fix that problem. Let's make sure that son of a billionaire never gets a fourteen hundred dollar stimulus check. But in order to do that, we're going to need like a one to one ratio between IRS agents and like American, which means we're going to have to, I guess, bring in immigrants and make them IRS agents in order to get a one to one ratio. So, you know, the irony is like they hate the IRS. They hate the government. And so their their approach is critique the government for not having an omniscient ability uh, to you know stop waste uh, and use that as justification for not helping anybody. So it's it's purely hypocritical. Yeah, you know, for me, I, the number I'm willing to accept of quote unquote waste, which by the way is people paying less taxes, which is what Republicans want anyway, is higher. It's like, what if it was 20% of people who didn't quote unquote need it? Like, how do we get that number lower? And what are the costs like you're talking about, right? Um, if I had my way, there wouldn't be any itemization of taxes, right? It would be, we'd have a simple system where the rich pay a lot more, uh, the poor pay next to nothing, and those of us in the middle pay a predictable amount. Uh, and if you simplify that system, we'd all probably pay less and everything would be more fair. Uh, and the last tax bill they they passed in 2017, um, I think it was 2017, the next year, I think, which was 2018, was the first time in American history that the top 400 richest people in the country were paying a lower tax rate than everybody else. That's the world they want. They want those people paying less. Well, uh, I think to wrap this up, Jason, I think, you know, what Biden said in a different context, this is a big effing deal. Maybe that's the name of our podcast today. Uh, I think this is such a big effing deal. It's a sign that this is a, a successful administration out the gates. It's going to help a lot of people. Um, there are going to be problems with it inevitably, um, but I, I hope and pray uh, and we'll do everything I possibly can with the, the little bully pulpit we have to, to push this administration to be as effective as possible because everything's on the line right now when it comes to progressive legitimacy. And we could emerge from this with a public that trusts the government way more than they do now or one that trusts it way less. And the bird is in our hands, as they say. 
All right, for grabbing or in the vein of what we were just talking about, I, I think it is important to illustrate for the people in your life how this bill is going to make a difference in your life. So look, maybe there's a bill that you've been putting off. Maybe there's something that you've really needed to do for your home, for your, your child's education, for who knows what it is. Maybe look, maybe it's something frivolous, but that frivolous thing is going to stimulate the economy that maybe like you've been wanting to take singing lessons or whatever. Well, you know what? That person who would, who would teach you to sing has been living on the gig economy. And I bet that it's been kind of difficult for them over the last year, whatever it is. I would encourage people to go on social media and talk about exactly how they're going to use this stimulus so that we can illustrate for folks uh, that it is making a difference. And I'd walk them through it. You know, if it is something uh, where you're hiring somebody in the gig economy, talk about, you know, that talk about how it makes a difference for people. Let's really let people see how this is going to make a difference uh, in the economy and what the effect of this legislation is going to be. Hey, we're excited to get back to the voicemail. Sorry we didn't do it this episode, but we, we really mean it this time. Next episode, uh, we're going to respond to some voicemails. So, you know, throw some stuff at us. Maybe it's specifically about the COVID relief bill. Maybe it's about something else. Just, you know, make us work. It's 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. Also, if you're not going to make us work, like if you just got a dumb, fun question, like ask that. Uh, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is, uh, he is in, I think, maybe the most interesting venue that he stayed in in his time in Costa Rica, and that time is coming to an end. Uh, he's about to head back to New York. Don't don't miss this amazing content. It's at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram, and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music is provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.